Hi, I'm Ashley Pacillo. I'm the founder and CEO of Point7 Group. And I'm proud to work in cannabis because of the major impact that we're able to have at the government level, at the startup level, and now at the legacy operator level, especially in states like New York. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. I'm your host, Carson Humiston, the founder of Vangst. And today I'm excited because I have one of my best friends on the show, Ashley, the founder of Point7 Group. Ashley and I have known each other since my first year in cannabis. I'm, I'm not sure we'll find out when Ashley's first year in cannabis was, but been great friends. We've grown our businesses together and super excited to have you on the show today. Ashley, how are you doing? Doing really well. Another day in, in the life. I feel like it's it's always drinking out of the fire hose in cannabis, but I think we all kind of enjoy that even on the really long, tricky days. On the long, tricky days. And you moved to New York, if I understand correctly? Yes. I was actually living in New York at the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, and left to go to Colorado for what was supposed to be a few months. And long story short, wound up involved in a number of cannabis projects, decided to just make the Colorado a move. And I hoped at the time that I would be able to come back to New York when and if New York legalized and started to release its own set of programs. So it, it took eight years, but finally made the move back. And it's been awesome. It's, it's definitely a really exciting time in New York. That's for sure. Yeah, well, we're going to we'll talk about the entire story of the last eight years, but you still have your place in Aspen. So, you know, there's us who are lucky enough to be able to go crash there every once in a while. We still get to see you in Colorado from time to time. Yeah, I feel like I, I still live on airplanes. And as much as there is going on in New York, we're still active in a, a number of other states right now. So no shortage of things to do. And the Aspen New York life is pretty good, I think. So I think you got the right setup going here. Feel like I'm. I've got a good balance. I'd like to see a little more of the mountains, but no complaints. <laughs> so, okay, let, let's let's jump into it. Talk to us about how you originally got involved in the space. I know you said you were living in New York in 2013, and walk us through the story of how you ended up getting into cannabis in the first place. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting series of events. I had. I had signed to start a non-cannabis job in New York City that was supposed to start in the summer of 2014 and i was offered a short-term project in colorado at the start of 2014 so i made the the trip out there thought it'd be a fun little adventure for a few months and i was introduced to meg sanders who was the ceo of mindful at the time a vertically integrated facility in colorado and she was looking for support putting together what was one of the first career fairs in the space and so i took took her on as a client, was doing a bunch of event management work. And then, yeah, one thing led to another. And flash forward, I was running six retail stores, a significant part of the operation itself, manufacturing, cultivation, distribution. And it just, it was one thing after the other. And a very wild two years, it's certainly how I cut my teeth in the space and really learned the ins and outs of cannabis operations, cannabis compliance, and cannabis becoming more of a mainstream business. And wait, what year was this again? This was 2014. 
2014, so from 2014 to 2016 is when you're actually literally like running retail stores, cultivation, like an employee in the space. Yeah, I was an employee in the space and my, my actual job title versus what I was doing each day, it, it, there was not always alignment there, but you know, this was a time when previously, if you cultivated cannabis and you sold cannabis, you were, you were making good money, but suddenly there was a lot of saturation. There were a lot of other license holders and operators were being forced to really understand their procedures and their ability to standardize and be very efficient. And I think that my timing was definitely part luck realizing that facilities like ours suddenly needed to be operating in a very different way. And one thing led to another, and it was very clear. I, I couldn't leave the space. There was way too much opportunity, especially as a young woman that, you know, was figuring out what I wanted to do with my career. And yeah, so I, I had a really kind of interesting mashup of skills. I, I've been a writer for a long time. I understand procedures, operations, compliance. And I was really connecting a lot of dots to try and optimize the space that we had, adjust to ever-changing market conditions and make sure that we, yeah, that we were going to be competitive in a hyper-competitive market, especially at that point. So then you decided to leave this company and then, then what did you decide to do next? It was a difficult decision to leave, but I, I recognized that most other states were following Colorado's progress and I think trying to understand what Colorado did right and what Colorado maybe didn't get right in order to make sure other programs were stronger and, and reflective of those mistakes and those wins. So uh, I decided to start a, what I thought was going to be a small consulting business supporting groups applying in, in other markets. So right after Colorado, I'm heavily involved in Ohio, Pennsylvania and Maryland and at the time, I was very confident it would be successful, but I had no comprehension at that point, the size that the business could reach and like what the actual market need was for the services we were providing. And things just really kind of took off from there. But I started, I set up the company at the end of 2015. We launched January 1 of 2016. 2016 was a big year for cannabis for those people that weren't around at that time because going into 2016, California hadn't even been like legalized for adult use yet. So in 2016, on January 1 of 2016, the only markets that had adult use were Colorado, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska. And so your idea was that there's going to be more and more markets that are going to open up. These markets are going to need a blueprint. People are going to need to open up businesses, win licenses, and since I have this great experience in Colorado, I could help these people in new markets. Was that just like the general yeah, business definitely. thesis? Definitely. And I remember thinking that most states would pursue medical programs first, which is absolutely what happened. And now we're in a state, 2022, where most of those medical markets are now exploring what adult use programming would look. As far as a longer term or middle term forecasting perspective, I, I felt like we would be in a, a pretty healthy position because once the medical markets moved, there would still be room to work with teams a second time on the adult use side. What I didn't fully anticipate that these medical markets, especially, I had no idea how competitive they were going to be on the licensing side, because to your point, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, these were adult use markets where 
it was pretty simple to get a permit. You filled out paperwork, you had to meet certain requirements. Obviously there was a, f- a funding and capital requirement of sorts, but by comparison, states like Ohio that are going to give out 12 grow licenses, that's a different ball game entirely as far as the level of preparation that you have to go through just to throw your hat in the ring. Hundreds of people competing for these pretty limited slots. Yeah, yeah. Tell, tell us more about that. So, so in a place like Ohio, they're going to give out 12 licenses. There's hundreds of people that want them. What is the process like? And really, this is where you come into place. I mean, I think a lot of people listening probably have no idea what would go into winning one of those 12 licenses. I mean, I remember seeing you when we were, I think at some point we were sharing an office. Maybe I can't remember why we were working out of the same office, but these, these applications were like the size of like phone books from the eighties. I've never seen anything like it to open a pot shop. You need to fill out a, like a, like a phone book. So give us a sense of like, what in God's name could they possibly be asking for in these applications? Oh my gosh. It was crazy to me. And it still is crazy to me now that things have, have kind of evolved and changed once again, but especially 2016, 2017, 2018, even into 2019, when you think about states legalizing, we kind of put them into two buckets. So you have free market models where Washington, Oregon, Colorado, but even medical in Oklahoma and medical in Mississippi, where the bar to get a license is is set fairly low. So what happens is you have a lot of people apply, a lot of people get licensed, and then the market natural forces applied to the business sort of determine who's going to survive and who isn't. If you're smarter at your business, you put more into it, you just have greater competitive advantages and you'll be around and people who are not on that side of the spectrum will naturally fall off and it takes the pressure off of the state to actually score groups and rank them and issue permits in that more limited fashion. So the other bucket are merit-based systems where, as you were saying, there's 12 12 slots or 10 slots, 50 slots, whatever. A lot of people want those permits. And so it's a process where the state is essentially evaluating whether or not you are capable of carrying out the business plan that you've developed. And so they want to see it all. They want to see full engineering plans, architectural drawings, full-length business plans, five-year performas, written procedures for every single functional thing that you're going to do in your business. How do you mitigate odor? How do you destroy waste? How do you recall a product? How do you check an ID at the store, train an employee? And so depending on what your license type is, there's these extremely long lists of requirements. And there's sort of mixed feelings about the validity of that process. On one hand, in order for someone to win, you jump through a lot of those hoops. Maybe you've demonstrated that you're very well planned out and you have a better chance at being successful and operating compliantly. On the other hand, not everyone can hire consultants and lawyers and architects, et cetera, for basically a bet. I mean, it's a gamble. Who knows if you're going to win? So to spend exorbitant amounts of money in that preparation process isn't possible. And I think that's one of the reasons licensing has really changed, that states realize that that method and that model, it creates an environment where certain people are ineligible from the beginning because the barriers are set very high. But at that point, when we were starting the business, for me, I didn't really understand all of those dynamics the way that I do now. And we were basically engaged to help teams understand 
and develop all of those processes. Most of our clients were entrepreneurs, investment groups, family offices. Some of them came out of manufacturing, retail, agriculture, but they didn't necessarily know the ins and outs of running a cannabis operation. And so it's this massive list. Yeah, they are kind of like phone booths, actually. I have a bunch of them printed and it's amazing how massive these things are. <laughs> yeah, when I was hearing you talk about all the requirements of like the business plan and the five-year pro forma and showing the how you're going to check people's security and IDs, I was just thinking like, and this is why I started a hiring company because you're talking about barriers. How are you supposed to know in five years from now how you're going to check people's security? So anyway, you need to hire someone like Ashley. I think most entrepreneurs have an idea of this is the vision for my cannabis business, but they have no idea all these steps. So you would hire a group like Ashley's group, 0.7 group. They come in, they help you with everything, the entire application process. Talk to us a little bit about the success. So you started this in 2016. Now we're here in 2022 and you guys have had a tremendous amount of success in winning these licenses that are extremely competitive to come by. Yeah, we have. And I, I would attribute a lot of that to above all else, certainly my team. I, I work with some absolutely incredible people and really need to understand the, the politics at play, how legislation came to be, you know, what's going on in the community where someone intends to apply and how does this business work within that community or, or raise concerns and it's part journalism, it's part business strategy, it's part technical writing, it's part uh, financial planning. We really hit on everything. And the philosophy that we've had from the beginning is if we do our jobs well and right, then our clients are not just successful during the licensing process, but they are well poised to be operationally ready on time. Most markets stipulate that you need to be operationally ready within six months or nine months. So if that application process is just for the optics versus making those decisions in a way where that, that you intend to follow, even if you get the license, you probably will fail because there's so much you have to bring to life in a short amount of time. And so we've been really focused on that. We've been very successful. I think we've worked in over 40 states now. For licensing, it's probably 20 to 25, but we've won in almost every competitive market where we've been hired. But since then, we've tried to develop other solutions and offerings to not only support legacy groups, social equity groups intending to apply, but also groups that got licensed and are now like deer in headlights trying to figure out what did we commit them to on paper that they now have to bring to life quickly and how are they going to go about that? So we've done everything from on-site training. I've staffed certain places with my team as interim leads. We've done handholding during inspections with state officials. The scope has continued to kind of evolve just as the industry has, but it's a lot. There's always something to do, that's for sure. <laughs> so let's talk about the topic that's on everyone's mind, New York. Every time I get onto a call with someone, they're like, hey, how's your business doing in New York? Like, not very well. There's not a lot of jobs to fill right now. Yeah. So I would love to hear from you since you're, you moved to New York, you're anticipating, and we're all anticipating New York could be the largest cannabis market, maybe in the world. What the hell is going on with the New York market? How much time do we have? Because it's really difficult to distill down, but I'll certainly do my best to start. And just to kind of contextualize this a little, New York legalized medical cannabis and released 
they're medical license holders, which are called registered organizations. That process started in 2015, I think it was 2015, 2014, 2015, by the time they were actually operational. And so you have these medical facilities, they're fully vertical, meaning they have cultivation and manufacturing between four and eight retail stores. So they've been alive and well for a while now. Also, New York is a state that issued a number of hemp licenses to growers over the past few years. And so you've had these other programs happening in the background. In March of 2021, New York rolled out adult use legislation, which started the process of getting people excited, people really starting to think about how to position themselves in New York and what to apply for. But the challenge is when legislation comes out, it gives us a, a sense of where a market is going and how a program might look. But until you have final regulations, there's just a lot of unknowns. And so to your point, there's not a lot of people hiring. Teams are getting organized. Teams are registering their businesses. They're putting together their executive teams and things like that. But wait, can you even apply for a license right now? So there's a few things that are happening and things are actually moving a bit more quickly. The first are conditional cultivation licenses that were prioritized for many of these hemp farmers. That program had a lot of challenges in New York. So they were issued the first wave of licenses. And I forget the exact number, but within the last two weeks, the first few dozen were given their... So just in like plain English, basically what happened here is there was people that have been farming hemp in New York for... Decades? Is that no, fair to say? No. Not decades. Maybe, but I, I would say the target group are shorter term within the last few years. But these are probably like small time farmers. I would imagine a lot of them are in like upstate New York. Most of them are in upstate New York. Upstate New York, small time farmers. And so New York wanted to make sure it was fair for these small time farmers to be able to have a shot at having a cultivation program, right? Yeah, I'd say that's okay. a fair summary. So now that you have these small-time farmers that won V1 of the cultivation licenses before any like larger businesses could really come in and try to get cultivation licenses. Correct. So and from what I understand, speaking with some of these folks, these are pretty small operations. And so like for Vanks, as an example, most of our clients are trying to hire 200, 300 cultivators. And like that's just not happening at the small-time farmers. So like... It's not big business that we're talking about here. I'd say no, it's not big business that we're talking about. The future of those license holders and the way that they'll be allowed to expand could can change that a little bit. But that's the first rollout. But right on the heels of this is a program designed for for retail. And so as a reminder, this first wave of cultivation is not the end of cultivation. There will be another licensing round maybe at the end of the year could be the beginning of next that time frame is not fully known at this point but licensing will open up for additional okay nurseries processing distribution co-ops micro businesses delivery and dispensaries as well as potentially additional medical licenses and consumption lounges so those opportunities are still there so like basically at this point just to make sure if Mm -hmm. if if i didn't have a hemp farm i was uneligible to participate in like trying to win a license for cultivation, but now in the future, they're going to open it up and there will be opportunities if I have a group that might want to get into cultivation in New York, but that just hasn't happened yet. Correct. So we do not have that time frame yet. We do not have regulations final yet, but we do know that 
that's, it's an inevitability. There's no grayness around the fact that those licenses will open up and there will be an opportunity to apply for them, hopefully by the end of this year. But I think the state very thoughtfully is trying to prioritize specific groups of people ahead of the sort of traditional licensing round. So the hemp piece is first, and then the other is, is going to be a, a retail retail licensing process specifically for people who have been harmed by prohibition and, and by the war on drugs. So there's basically a, a financial set aside to support these teams in going through the licensing process, but also to support them in the procurement of real estate and then developing that site for whatever your operating purposes, that's your biggest cost center in your cannabis company. So, and in it typically in other markets where social equity was prioritized, and I think the states were doing their best and programs were well-intentioned, the reality is if groups do not have access to funding and or access to viable real estate, you can give certain groups of people or give social equity applicants a head start, quote unquote, but it's not really going to make a difference if those barriers are still right. There. The fact that the state is trying to figure out the real estate piece paired with funding is certainly unique. It's a big endeavor, but if there was a state to figure it out, I, I'd say New York is is the state to to nail this. So hopefully they do. I'm certainly rooting for it. In other states, if you win a license, but then you don't have the capital to secure a real estate building and hire a team and get the project operational, really what's the point of winning the license at all? So in New York, we just went through what was happening on the cultivation side. On the retail side, they're prioritizing groups that have previously been negatively impacted by the war on drugs. So if someone out there is listening and might be eligible, what are the requirements right now for the conditional retail license to be part of the group that could one get access to the license and two get access to the funding that you just described from new york so the the qualifications as far as i understand them and i learned some things even last week that challenged my understanding a bit but it seems the qualification now is that you actually had to have been convicted so as an example we we have a couple of groups that we're doing some pro bono work for right now that they were arrested this is on their record but they spent considerable dollars and resources to try to get these things expunged and fortunately or unfortunately depending how you want to think about it that's now disqualified them from applying for the mm. round. For groups that do qualify, they, they need to own the majority of the business. And for any group that's applying for retail, you are going to be limited to three retail locations. That's an interesting piece too, when you compare New York to markets like Colorado, where there was not a, a limit placed on the total number of retail stores that you could have, which gives an opportunity for bigger businesses to come in and, and kind of own the market over a period of time. New York has followed suit similar to, to other states where there's certain licenses you can't even own together. So in New York, if you own cultivation, you can't touch retail, you can't touch delivery, you can't touch lounges. If you own retail, you can't touch lounges. You can only own three. So we're all kind of wrapping our arms around what the parameters are. And I think for a lot of the teams that we're coaching and consulting for, part of the exercise is really trying to place value on each of these licenses and really consider the viability of, of each of them. Because when in markets where you cannot own on both sides, you don't have 
vertical integration, there's definitely challenges because of that that need to be considered. And it's definitely been interesting for us as we're creating financial models and, and loose forecasts. I was just going to ask, so like right now for the conditional retail license, like the, so really from understanding this correctly, the criteria is that you have to have been previously convicted for a cannabis offense. So the one requirement for this retail conditional license is, is that you had to have been previously convicted for a cannabis offense. That's the requirement right now. There's other criteria, obviously you need to be of age, there's financial requirements and the way that you apply whether you're applying as a partnership or you're applying as an individual, you're applying as a team, like each situation has to be considered a little bit differently as it pertains to the income piece. So at this point in time in the New York market, there's conditional licenses for cultivation, which are set aside for the hemp farmers. There's retail licenses, conditional licenses, which are going towards people negatively impacted by the war on drugs. That's V1. And now for V2, it's going to open up to people that don't meet those criteria that want to open a cannabis business in New York. So if I'm one of those people, would right now be the time to start working with a group like Point Seven and other groups? And is that what you're seeing happening is that other groups are assembling on the sidelines waiting for that opportunity or like kind of what are you seeing with the other groups that don't meet these conditional criteria? We actually have some teams that even they do qualify, but they're thinking about applying under the, the regular round, so to speak. There's just, there's a lot of factors that kind of come into play here, but generally most of our clients that don't qualify, they're building their teams, they're definitely getting financials together and a lot of just straight strategy consulting. Again, like some of these clients that we've worked with are very savvy in whatever other businesses they're part of, but are coming up to speed as quickly as they can, kind of learning the, the cannabis side of things. We're also working with a lot of groups that are just recently figuring out that they do qualify under these, these various programs, whether they're convicted. I think I might be confusing New York and Mass, but I'm fairly certain both states, you can also be the descendant of someone who was convicted. Mm for a, a marijuana offense. The chapter of the law defines like what offenses are qualifying and which ones aren't. I believe you can also be a, a domestic partner to someone who was convicted. So there's a lot of different criteria, but we, interestingly enough, we have connected with teams that qualify and are actually exploring, but just waiting until that, that regular round. It's really tough. We don't even know what the licensing requirements are going to be. So the advice I've been giving to our clients just in various presentations around the state, et cetera, is to not think so much about like, is this going to be needed on the application? Is the state going to require us to submit A, B, and C? If you think about the application as a roadmap to building a business and building an operation that's set up to actually succeed, every single thing you invest your time into is going to be necessary at some point, whether or not the state says, do you have a hiring and recruitment plan or not? You're still going to need one. Like you're still going to have to hire and recruit people. So I'm trying to kind of orient people around that. These steps are going to be important to you regardless. It's just a little bit of a mystery right now, whether or not this is going to be a phone book application or something a bit more simple. My sense is that it's, it'll be somewhere in the middle and the barriers to apply will be pretty dramatically reduced from other places. Once we find out more, I think it'd be fun to have you come back on the show and give the update on here's what's actually going to happen in New York for V2 of the licenses. 
sort of taking a step aside from New York and just thinking about the industry more holistically, do you think that it's better for the industry to have these really competitive licensing requirements? Or do you think that anybody that wants to get a cannabis business, assuming they meet like baseline qualifications, like in a place like Colorado or how it started, should be able to? Or do you think that like the government should be involved like this and say, hey, in Ohio, there's only going to be 12 licenses. What's your personal opinion on the best way for this industry to grow and thrive over regulation or under regulation? Mm. That's a really good question. Because just really quickly before you answer, you look at a state like Oklahoma, right? You could argue it's just a race to the bottom and there's people on every street corner having these small time shops. But, you know, then there's a place like Ohio where there's not a lot of opportunity for anybody to get involved. So just for some context for the listeners, it's not a super clear answer, regardless of general business philosophy. It's not clear because we haven't seen either work extremely well. Right. I think so many considerations here. It's definitely somewhere in the middle. I mean, I look at states like Oklahoma, where it it felt kind of like a free for all because it didn't take very much to get a license. But that meant a lot of people received permits to build these various cannabis facilities who weren't forced via regulations to actually learn the ins and outs of these operations and how compliance impacts a procedure or safety or community engagement, et cetera. And so it is a race to the bottom in certain respects. And you'll have groups that survive because basically because they're more well capitalized than other groups and or they had a better overarching business strategy. On the other side of the spectrum, states like Ohio, Pennsylvania, places where it was extremely competitive it's very much a, a pay-to-play model in a lot of ways. For, for me, I think requirements to demonstrate that you're going to take the business seriously, that you understand what rules you need to adhere to, that you've built financials and a business roadmap that are actually based on the law. We, people will call and they have these incredible ideas that are not allowable. Like, I'm excited to open a dispensary and make products in the back room. Like, those are not the same license, but when the barrier is really low, people get permits without having to think through that. And that's damaging too. We've had groups over the years where they've got second mortgages out on their homes and these all these crazy things to try and finance a company that's truly not viable. There there are states and mass in New York come to mind because they they didn't they did not establish a cap meaning Massachusetts didn't say it's this many grows, it's this many retailers. They're sort of letting market conditions determine how many operators are going to be necessary. And they're letting communities decide on that, similar in New Jersey. But they're still requiring teams to have some amount of capital and to have a plan on paper in order to submit. And I think to me that these Northeast markets have found a, a sweet spot. They're still figuring it out. There's still hiccups and there's there's issues, but I think it's a much happier medium than what we were seeing six years ago. Well, I think we're running out of time here, but this was a super interesting conversation around all things licensing, a topic that a lot of people don't know anything about. I mean, if you're, I think that everyone, they go to a dispensary, they buy all the great products that are available on the markets and you have no idea how these businesses came about or all the thought that went into them. So Ashley and her team are playing a huge part in defining how these new markets roll out. And we've referred a ton of business over to Ashley and they've won tons of licenses for our clients who've gone on to make 
tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars. So if you are interested in getting into cannabis and winning a license and understanding how to do it successfully, we would certainly recommend working with Ashley and the team at Point Seven. So Ashley, any, any final thoughts for us on what you're most excited about looking forward in, in, into the next 10 years? You can't think about 10 years. It's like, how do you think like four months in advance? Cannabis is like dog years. 10 Not years. Hard. We will be old in 10 we'll years. We'll be so old. Now, it's an exciting time to be in the space. I think New York stands to unlock a lot of opportunity in throughout Europe and to really influence how many of the other medical markets in the country roll out adult use programs. And I'm not surprised that New York has taken the stand that it has. It's just very on brand for the state. So I'm excited to be part of that in the ways that we are. And yeah, let's let's do like New York State of the Union update podcasts in the next few months, because it's like every time I turn around, there's something new. Good. Well, Ashley will be back in a couple months once we have a more clear timeline and plan for New York. So tune back in then. And that's all we've got for today, folks. Join us next week. We've got another amazing guest coming here next week. Thank you for your time, Ashley. We will we will share out all of your details and your business details. So if people want to work with you, they know where to find you. Amazing. Thanks, Carson. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.